This week, the comics guys explain the history of Marvel Part 3, The Age of Marvel. Explain this! Alright, thank you, Ben. So, where we left, left off, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby had just uh, created uh, the first family of uh, Marvel. Um, so, Darren, how did those first couple of issues go? How do they receive they're a smash hit. Fantastic Four is unlike anything on the stands, uh, you know, at any time before. Uh, and it is grabbed wholeheartedly by, you know, the audience. Um, it's just familiar enough to the previous fans of what Marvel had been doing, right? Like the horror and science fiction stuff that they were doing. There's a lot of monsters. Uh, there's a lot of melodrama, that kind of thing. And it has tied in a very interesting and unusual look at being a superhero, right? And uh, it uh, succeeds wildly. Um, the first issue sells hundreds of thousands of copies, and it continues to sell very well throughout, you know, over the next five or six months. Um, the second issue is uh, immediately charges headlong into a scroll invasion of Earth. Uh, where the these shape-shifting aliens have uh, arrived on the Earth and immediately recognize that the Fantastic Four are the you know main thing kind of preventing them from just taking over the planet. Uh, so they decide to disguise themselves as the Fantastic Four and frame them for crimes. Uh, a very kind of like reliable Stanley plot that he has used over and over again, and it works perfectly well. Uh, and then in the third issue, uh, the team has a fight, right? Like they battle a supervillain. And over the course of that battle, they kind of get crabby with each other. Reed and Ben and Johnny all are kind of like yelling at each other uh, over the process. And at the end of issue number three, Johnny quits the team. And there's no, it's not resolved in that issue, right? Like as, oh. as far as you know, if you stopped reading with that story, the Human Torch isn't on the team anymore. Um, and in a time when serial storytelling was not the norm, uh, for superhero comics at any point, the idea that you would have a story that like, you know, continued into next month was not brand new, but, uh, you know, like pretty damned unusual. Uh, and then so, in the fourth issue, sorry. So does he get any, uh, so he starts doing this serialized storytelling. Does he get any pushback from, uh, you know, his boss on this? At, at this point, there is literally nobody paying attention, right? I oh, mean, okay. Martin Goodman right. is still the boss. Martin Goodman right. has told him to do a superhero story. There is nobody above Stan acting as Stan's editor, right? The only yeah, result that Martin Goodman cares about yeah. is sales. And right. as long as sales are good, Stan and Jack can do whatever they want. And that's part of what makes the Marvel bullpen era so successful, right? Is that there is, you know, they're in completely untested waters um, and their management only is measuring things by sales. So as long as it sells, your creativity is not uh, impeded in any way, right? So very cool. Okay. And so, so a, with that third story, the end of the third story, Johnny takes off, right? He's he's mm -hmm. he's off on his own. And so the fourth issue of Fantastic Four, Johnny is like homeless in New York City. He has no place to go. He's a kid, right? He's he's mad at his parent figures, and so he's like out on the streets. And he takes a room in a flop house in the Bowery. Uh, and starts hanging out with homeless people. And it turns out that one of the homeless people that he's hanging out with is revealed to be Namor the Submariner, allowing Stan to bring back yet another of his favorite you know, characters okay. who had been successful in, in the, both the 40s and 50s. 
So why is Namor? Do they explain why Namor is uh, homeless? Wait, it's explained eventually, but at this point, the only thing that we know is that he has lost the Atlanteans, right? Like he's lost his memory. Something terrible has happened to him in the recent past that caused him to lose his memory. And when he, so Human Torch realizes who he is and chucks him back in the ocean to restore his memory, right? Like literally just flies out over the water and drops him in. Uh, this works and Submariner suddenly remembers who he is, swims off to Atlantis to see what's been going on in his absence and discovers that Atlantis is empty and in ruins, Ooh. right? And we don't know what's happened. So he immediately, of course, jumps to the conclusion that humans did this somehow. And that's, you know, the, the part of his memory he doesn't remember, you know, the, the, the event that caused him to lose his memory clearly is also probably the human's fault and comes back and attacks the city. This, of course, gets the Fantastic Four back together uh, to, to fight him off uh, and, you know, uh, convince him to you know to leave basically they drive him off in a very kind of like inconclusive fight that is at least part uh in part uh finishes the way it does because namor sees sue and immediately falls for her and decides he can't actually hurt her so uh he has to kind of like give up the fight at that point to you know return back now over the course of the next few months and years in several different comics the whole Namor new backstory will be like laid out as actually that, you know, like a supervillain is responsible for him having lost his memory. The Atlanteans are still out there. They didn't all die when Atlantis was attacked and they've been kind of like roaming nomadically and Namor gets them back and, you know, becomes their king again and a whole bunch of more plot goes on. But it's not really covered right there in that story. Uh, and then in issue number five, we introduce Dr. Doom. Right, we have suddenly in, we then introduce one of the greatest villains in comic book history, uh, as you know the, the the villain you can't get at. Right, like not only is he in every way a match for Mister Fantastic brains wise, but he's the ruler of his own country, and so dip, he has like diplomatic immunity, which you know in Marvel comics is an astonishingly good thing to be able to have because it's got nothing to do with real world diplomatic immunity. <laughs> um, but basically, diplomatic immunity in the Marvel universe means you can pretty much do anything, threaten entire you know to destroy the entire planet, and there's nothing we can do about it legally. Right. So, uh, so he becomes this tremendously satisfying villain. Not only is he just great fun to write because he's so over the top, egotistical, and full of himself. Um, but you can never get like a clear victory over him, right? Like there's all, he's always, you know, like back out there working on something else. And he's always got like an entire country full of true believers, uh, to support him. And right. so like by five issues in, right, we've built a pretty fascinating fictional universe for these characters to be running around in. You've kind of like connected it to the past of, uh, Timely and Atlas, uh, through not only having the modern day version of the Human Torch, but by bringing back Namor. You've given it this kind of like connection to the um, monster stories of Atlas. And you've also kind of, you know, like charged headlong into a new era of superhero storytelling. Um, and so the fan response is unlike any fan response that had ever happened before, right? Like, I mean, people are writing letters to Marvel at a, at a rate never seen before and with kind of like an impassioned level of interest in what's happening. DC had never seen this. Atlas had never seen this with any of their other genres of comics. People cared about this. Um, 
one of the things that they cared about was, for example, that like the Fantastic Four through their first couple of issues are not wearing costumes, right? They're just dressed in their civvies all the time. Uh, and fans didn't like that. They were like, if you're going to do a superhero story, our superheroes should be wearing superhero costumes. You should create costumes for them. And so Jack is just like, well, okay, sure. And <laughs> designs a beautifully simple design of just like a, you know, jumpsuit, basically, uh, you know, monocolor with the four logo on the chest that basically disappears on the human torch when he goes fiery. And then, of course, they give Ben a full suit, but that only lasts like an issue or two when they realize he's much more interesting looking with his shirt off. Right. And so he gets rid of that. Um, and so the, you know, the only people actually kind of like full time wearing the Fantastic Four uniform are Reed and Sue. Uh, and the look just works. It just, it's perfect. It's exactly right. The characters, you know, they don't look like any other superheroes out there, but they are very clearly superheroes, right? Right. Yeah. I guess, so, I guess they didn't put them in, uh, in costumes to begin with because they wanted to still draw in people in the monster, the monster uh, comic crowd. Right. Well, and that was that was Stan's premise, right? Like, what if we had superheroes who actually behaved like people in the real world? What, what you know, why do you wear tights? Right. You know, when you go out to like, you know, fight crime and, and, and supervillains, that sort of thing. How is that a reasonable thing to do? Right. right. And so like, you know, integrating that those kind of like elements slowly into the comic, uh, you know, like worked for the comic. Right. So very quickly, there is now I mean, once you're five issues in the full on sales reports have been received. Right. Um, very quickly, it goes Fantastic Four goes to monthly uh, within those five issues. It started out by monthly. Um, and was is selling so much that like you know the, uh, Martin Goodman's like no give me more of these right this is great, and so Stan and Jack are still churning out. I remember the rest of the line is still happening right, and so the Stan and Jack every day are still turning out more monster stuff, more horror stuff, more romance, more westerns, and they still got that limitation that independent news had put on them of the limited number of series they had per month. So anytime they brought in a new, a new uh, series, came up with a new idea, they had to kill an old one, right? There was no just expanding the line. We have to, to you know, like pick what's to replace. And so uh, Stan and Jack create their next character uh, that, they, that they work on is, uh, is the Incredible Hulk. And the Incredible Hulk, like the Fantastic Four, draws very heavily on the tradition of the monster comics that Stan and Jack had been doing all of this time. The difference was that uh, every monster comic or pretty much every monster comic that Stan and Jack did was a one and done, right? Like it's, we do one story about how the monster tries to take over the world and fails or succeeds if it's like one of those like ironic twist stories or something. Um, and this was going to be a serial story in which we came back to the same monster over and over again. And that monster would have to like go through life. It would be a man who turned into a monster and tried to like hide the fact that he was a monster, still like work in his day job kind of thing, and deal with the fact that as the monster, he was hunted every day by the authorities, by the army and that sort of thing. And we would tell this extended serial story about this monster. Um, so there wasn't really much intention to make the Hulk a superhero. Right, the Hulk is a the Hulk is a monster series. It's just a serial monster series, and so the first few issues of it um, do, in fact, put the Hulk up against opposing menaces, but 
the main menace that he's fighting is the army, is Thunderbolt Ross and the army who are trying to track him down. Incidentally, over the you know rest of the series, he's also running into alien invaders and you know communist mad scientists and that kind of thing who are trying to capture him, that sort of thing. Um, but those seem almost kind of incidental, right? Like the main story is about the Hulk and his separation from society. The problem is we all remember the Hulk as a hero when we assume that he was, you know, like always tremendously popular. The Hulk was not, right? The Hulk goes six issues and then gets canceled for lack of sales. Uh, really? it's, it's done by early 1963. Wow. Um, it just, it didn't, it, it didn't work. It didn't catch on the way the Fantastic Four had, right? Um, and so they, you know, they kind of like put him in their back pocket, right? Because they very much, Jack and Stan, very much like the character. And when he comes back shortly, he's going to be much more tied into the superhero universe because there will be a superhero universe when he comes back, right? right. So Hulk only lasts for six issues. Over the time that those six issues are running, now we're, you know, a year plus into the Fantastic Four run, uh, Martin Goodman is coming back to them saying, you know, Stan, I got to have more superheroes. I got to have more superheroes. Kill some of these Westerns, kill some of these monster series and everything. Replace them with superheroes because that's what's, that's moving, right? It's got to be music um, to Stan's ears because that's what he's been wanting. That's what he's wanted, exactly. Yeah. So Stan takes one of their um, kind of like mystery, arca you know, arcane weirdness mm -hmm. titles called um, Amazing Fantasy. And he changes the title. He changed the title for the next, the previous month's issue to Amazing Adult Fantasy, which was going to kind of like, ideally kind of like uh, uh, bring in a new era of different kinds of stories um, and try to bring in an, an older uh, fan base. Uh, and that didn't sell either. So with the last issue of Amazing Adult Fantasy, uh, he goes ahead and creates a new superhero uh, originally with Jack. Um, and this character is going to be called The Amazing Spider-Man. And The Amazing Spider-Man will be a story of a teenager uh, who gains superpowers, uh, gains the proportionate powers of a spider, and then has to kind of like try to function as a superhero in an even more real world setting than the Fantastic Four are in, right? Like the Fantastic Four live in a penthouse in a, you know, with a, with unlimited amounts of money and gadgets and all kind of stuff. Uh, you know, that, that's, there's a realism to their storytelling, but it's still ridiculous fantasy as far as like what they can do and where they go when they're, you know, um, just the, the, the ordinary details of their lives. And Stan very much wanted to do a story about a character who was just kind of a schlub, who was just kind of like an ordinary guy who accidentally got powers and had to deal with what those powers would do to his life. Um, the problem was, he of course goes immediately to Jack and says, all right, draw me up this character. And Jack Kirby, at that point in his career, certainly, and you know, probably for the rest of his career, couldn't draw an ordinary schlub if you paid him a million dollars, right? None of his characters are ordinary looking. He can't make a nondescript, nerdy looking guy who doesn't somehow look fantastic, right? Who doesn't somehow look amazing and with a cleft jaw and uh, you know muscles and everything else. So while he designs the costume pretty well, Jack uh, Stan is just not satisfied with the look of the character because he looks too good. He looks too handsome. He looks too muscular. Um, and so he goes to one of his other artists uh, on the staff at that point, who is Steve Ditko, uh, and says, "Can you draw me? You know, here's here's Stan's picture." 
can you make this look nerdier? Can you make this look weaker and skinnier and more, you know, like an ordinary guy? And Ditko is delighted, right? That he he completely knocks out this series, this eight-page story, um, using you know with Stan's uh, uh, Stan script, and they put that as the feature in the last issue of Amazing Adult Fantasy. And it's the story of Spider-Man. It's the story of Peter Parker and gets bit by a spider and he becomes a celebrity and, uh, you know, starts making money as Spider-Man, as you would think he would, uh, fails to catch a villain, fails to catch a bad guy who is like literally robbing uh, the box office of the uh, stadium that he's performing in. Uh, because it's not his business. He's not a superhero, right? That same bad guy, of course, comes back and then robs Aunt May's house, Aunt May and, and Uncle Ben's house, and he shoots Uncle Ben and kills him. And Peter realizes, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. It's my fault that Uncle Ben is dead. I'm going to have to actually, you know, like use my powers wisely. I'm going to have to actually try to help people. Uh, the story is you know, like I said, it's printed in the last issue of a comic. Everybody knows this is the last issue. They've announced it. But a lot of people were like, hey, that's a pretty good story. And it takes a few months, uh, you know, of the the sales of everything else around them kind of increasing to say, you know what, we're going to uh, give Spider-Man his own comic. And actually, the first two issues of Spider-Man's own comic each have two stories in them. Because Stan and Steve at that point were writing eight page stories or 10 page stories, intending them to fit in an anthology series. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Spider-Man number one, Spider-Man number one is not one story. There's two 10 page stories in it, right? Hmm. And the same with Spider-Man number two. It's not until three that the, the comic has caught up with the fact that, oh yeah, we're writing, you know, he's got his own comic now. This is not a feature in somebody else's. Um, so, you know, and once again, with each issue of Spider-Man, the sales are going through the roof. That's, you know, he's a tremendously popular character. Summer of 1962, the other character that they create quickly, uh, you know, Stan and Jack kind of like famously are sitting around saying, well, you know, we've, we've done the Fantastic Four, we've done Spider-Man, we've done the Hulk, how can we top ourselves, right? And famously, supposedly in this conversation, which may or may not have ever happened, Jack says, well, you know, the only thing you could do would be to write about God. That's the only thing bigger than what we've already done. And Stan kind of says, uh, wow, okay, why don't we do that? And decides to create a story about this mythical god, this Norse god uh, called Thor. Now, Thor, Kirby claims that Thor is entirely his creation, that Stan had almost nothing to do with it. And it is certainly true that uh, Jack knew much more about real world Norse mythology, which kind of like lends some credence to his version of the story. Um, whenever Jack is bringing like his own elements to the story, they tend to come from real Norse myth, whereas Stan is drawing still from like, you know, soapy melodramas, right? So like the, you, know, you can tell which characters were contributed by which creator. But by this point, Stan is now turning out, you know, so many comics per month. He's got a lot of faith in Kirby and lets Kirby do most of the, you know, they would come up with a very kind of simple script and then let Kirby design the story from their original script. And then Stan would just come back in and just put the words in, right, in in the, the plot that Jack had created. Um, it's really Thor that, like, gives Jack the freedom 
to create and design the way that would eventually become known as the Marvel, you know, the, the Marvel format, right? Of first we plot, then the artist goes off, draws everything, and then the writer comes back in and puts word bubbles in and actually scripts based on the artist's art, right? That's the Marvel method, and it's Thor that really kind of like invents how that's going to work. Stan is much more hands-on with the Fantastic Four. Um, but Thor, he realizes that this is Jack's thing. Jack gets this, that he cares about this. And all of the, you know, creation of uh, Asgard itself and all of the, the you know, um, the massiveness of the gods uh, is, is clearly right out of Jack's playbook. Mm-hmm. And technically, uh, it's once again, it's a smash hit. And for most of the 60s, in fact, a lot of people don't realize it, Thor was in fact one of the best-selling titles that Marvel had. Um, Thor outsold Spider-Man. A lot of, uh, there was a lot of periods in time when Thor outsold the Fantastic Four. For a while, it was basically Avengers was one and Thor was two for quite some time uh, as as a title. People have kind of like forgotten exactly how impressive its sales were for a while, but there's a reason that it never, you know, got canceled or was ever considered, uh, you know, to be removed from the lineup. It was always kind of like too powerful a seller to, to mess with. In the summer of 1962, the other thing that they try is now they've, you know, they they continue to have this mandate to create superheroes. And uh, Stan and Jack go back to a character that they had created back in the monster era. Um, The first appearance of Henry Pym is a uh, a horror story, is a a completely not a superhero story in which uh, Pym uh, basically invents a shrinking serum um, and tests it on himself and shrinks and winds up getting himself trapped in an anthill and chased around by ants. Uh, and then, you know, barely escapes uh, and manages to return to ordinary size uh, at the end of the story. And they had no intention of ever going anywhere with him, with this character after that, right? It was, a, once again, it was a monster one and done. Um, but Stan is kind of like racking his brain for character concepts and goes back and rereads that story and is like, well, that would actually be kind of cool. What if we had a character who could actually shrink down like that, but instead of running in terror from the giant ants who were chasing him around, what if, in fact, he controlled them? What if he had, you know, was was their friend and could like lead them to do things and everything? And Jack is kind of into this because he likes the idea, not so much of the character, the idea of, you know, like a tiny little character running around fighting crime is really kind of comical and tough to take seriously. But Jack loves the idea of being able to draw giant-sized things from his perspective, right? And so the the art on those first few Ant-Man stories is kind of remarkable for all of like the weird shots of like giant objects from Ant-Man's perspective. The art was just fun to do. Um, Ant-Man was never that successful a character. Uh, you know, they eventually very quickly uh, kind of like gave him the additional power to grow uh, because it was just comical how he could not deal with so many supervillains, right? Like he just didn't have the power to do it. Uh, They also gave him a sidekick and then, you know, eventually he got canceled, was never a terribly successful one, but because he's so important to the Avengers, obviously he has remained, you know, kind of a key character in the Marvel universe over the next 50 or 60 years, but he's never sold very well on his own in any efforts that they have tried. Um, but he does, in fact, actually come out in the fall, summer, fall of 1962 at the same time, um, which gives them basically four. By the time Hulk has run and gotten canceled, they still have four of their eight monthly titles uh, at any given time are featuring superheroes. 
1963, they continue on with the same, you know, that's the, the mandate is still the same. We're now two years into the Fantastic Four, which is a smash hit. Um, and Thor is doing pretty well and Spider-Man is doing pretty well. So Stan and Jack uh, create uh, another superhero who will be, the premise of him will be, what if we made a superhero out of the kind of character who is usually a bad guy, right? The kind of like ordinary person uh, who is frequently the villain in superhero stories, we're going to make him the hero. He's a weapons designer, right? Like he's a, he's a multi-zillionaire. Um, he's effectively a James Bond villain, right? But he's got a basic core of humanity and we'll make him uh, you know, sympathetic by giving him this injury. He will in fact actually have a bad heart and requires the use of his superhero costume of the armor that he wears just to keep himself alive. Right, and so the idea of like the disabled superhero, the the uh, the the hero who uh, whose powers basically cover up, or uh, you know, are in response to uh, a physical malady of the character, is once again a Stanley kind of like classic concept that he will then hit over and over again for some time. Um, and Iron Man is you know pretty successful uh, in the spring of 1963. Uh, he and Kirby go back to the World War II stuff that they so enjoyed doing and basically say, okay, we are going to create another, a new World War II title, but it will be kind of superhero-y and it will be kind of like the Fantastic Four or kind of like, uh, you know, the Challengers of the Unknown that Kirby had done previously, where we're going to have this, uh, you know, recurring group of commandos, this recurring group of, you know, like special unit uh, soldiers, and they will be ethnically diverse, and they will, you know, like bicker and argue with each other the way the Fantastic Four do, but by God, every day they will finally come together and punch out Hitler on a regular basis. Uh, and this is, once again, a very successful title, Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, uh, get their own title. You wouldn't really count this as a superhero strip, a superhero series, uh, except for the fact that within six or seven months of the Sergeant Fury stories starting, you know, set in World War II, Stan and Jack like the character so much that they introduce the modern day quote unquote version of him in the Fantastic Four. And that creates that with Fury comes shields and everything that goes with it, right? That's December 1963. Uh, this character, who is Sergeant Fury in his own comic, comes back as Colonel Fury in 1963, you know, 20 years after the war, and starts giving the Fantastic Four orders to, you know, do things uh, and go fight. In the case of his first appearance, it's the hate monger, uh, is the villain who is, of course, revealed at the end of the issue to be Adolf Hitler himself in disguise, right? That Adolf Hitler supposedly survived the war, became a supervillain, and then didn't die until 1963. No. Okay. Um, so that winds up tying the Sergeant Fury stories to the Marvel Universe, right? Like, now we are clear that this is the same guy in both series, which means that the Sergeant Fury stories are in the past of the Marvel Universe, right. which of course will become tremendously important in a few months when we introduce another character from that past. Uh, but before we do that, uh, uh, Steve Ditko is getting out Spider-Man stories, uh, which are very successful. And he comes to Stan with a character that is pretty much his solo creation. He has, uh, he, he's pretty much designed him himself. Um, he's got the look for him and kind of like the basic story outline for him. And it is the story of a master magician 
who has a you know a secret mansion in New York City, and people come to him with their problems, and he solves their problems with his magical powers. And it is very clear from those earliest drawings that Ditko intends him to be Asian, right? Like it's the the way that he's drawing him is Asian, uh, his features anyway, and his skin color is it's kind of questionable exactly, you know how white he's wh how white he is. Um, and Stan is like, we're, I don't think the world is quite ready for, you know, like this mysterious, you know, Chinese character that you seem to be trying to introduce and basically makes uh, Ditko like whiten him up, right? And, uh, you know, adjust his facial hair and his uh, features and definitely let's make sure that the skin is actually pink when, uh, you know, when this gets colored. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, Ditko's not delighted with, but he goes ahead and takes it. And that's, you know, for the most part, Stan does not contribute a great deal else to those first few stories. Um, and so Doctor Strange, when it begins, it's just part of Strange Tales. Like, you know, Spider-Man, all of those first few stories are only eight to ten pages long. And because Ditko wanted to create a character who is mysterious and, you know, most of the stories would be from the point of view of the people who were visiting him. Right, that they would be these kind of like tales of people who had problems that Doctor Strange helped them with. He's not interested in what Doctor Strange's origin is, right? Like, where did Doctor Strange come from? What is his, you know, where where did he get his stick? What's what's the deal with him? Um, Ditko did not care what it was because he's not the important part, right? The important part were these people who would come and talk to Doctor Strange, and Stan is like, nah, no, that's not going to work. Um, you know, we're doing superhero stories here. A superhero needs to have a costume. He needs to have an origin. He needs to have bad guys. He needs a mentor. He needs a supporting cast, et cetera, et cetera. And basically kind of like forced Ditko, forced all of these details on Ditko that he wasn't that excited to put in, right? Uh, eventually he gets more excited about it, right? And, uh, you know, so it's, it's about five months into his run of stories that we finally get an origin story we get the actual story of you know Stephen strange the surgeon who has the car accident and loses the use of his hands and then travels around the world to you know like find somebody who can heal him and winds up studying with the ancient one saves the ancient one from baron mordo and becomes his student and becomes the master of you know mystical arts etc cetera, etc cetera. um and that you know those characters those villains that do come in didco didn't really want them but once he kind of like bit into it, he made some wonderful ones, right? Like Mordo is a pretty good bad guy. Dormammu is a fabulous bad guy. You know, Nightmare is a pretty good bad guy. Like he's, you know, he's clearly having some fun making the uh, the, the the crazy menaces for Doctor Strange. Yeah, Doctor Strange has a fantastic supporting cast. Isn't uh, His comics don't usually get enough credit for it. Right, yeah. Very quickly, you have Clea as a, as, as a love interest who's, you know, tied to the bad guys. Wong becomes more of a person. Wong is actually in the first story, uh, but he doesn't have a personality yet, right? Like he's just the guy who meets you at the door and takes you to Dr. Strange. Um, it's not until several issues in that he actually becomes a person and not just, you know, not, not just the help, not just the, the butler. Right. Yeah. So by now it's late 1963. The Fantastic Four is doing great. You know, the, some of these titles are working, some of them are not. And Stan looks again at the, you know, at, at the the uh, Justice League, and how successfully the Justice League is integrating new characters into DC, right? Like when DC brings out a new character, very quickly they become members of the Justice League, right? right. Green Arrow was not an original member of the Justice League. The Atom was not an original member of the Justice League. Hawkman wasn't an original member. These guys all joined very shortly after they 
appeared as a solo character and the justice league appearances kind of like brought them to an audience right like if you didn't pick up those first couple of issues that the Adam was in of whatever comic he was in, well, you'd get to know him in the Justice League, right? They'd make a big splash out of like, now joining the Justice League, it's the Adam, da-da, you know? Um, and Stan realizes he doesn't have a title like that, right? He's not able to kind of like draw attention. Now, by this point, he's having crossovers all the time, right? Like Spider-Man met the Fantastic Four very quickly. And in his first issue, he meets the Fantastic Four. Um, the Hulk guest stars in the Fantastic Four, even when he doesn't have a title anymore, because Stan and Jack still like him, having him around in the in the universe. He'll become a recurring bad guy for a couple of different people, right? So these characters are all in the same world, and Stan's like, we should have a title that kind of like crosses over all of them, right? Like this should be the, the you know like the, the the feature. This will be our version of the Justice League, and so Stan and Jack go out and they create the Avengers. And of course, the premise of the Avengers is that Loki is trying to, uh, you know, mess with Thor again, as he does on a regular basis. And he finds the Hulk and he's like, damn, that dude could really mess with Thor's day. Right. Like, I'm going to drive this guy into uh, a passion, into a mad rage, uh, make the Hulk go on a rampage, as he periodically does. And then I'll make sure that Thor gets the distress call. And so Thor will have to come out here and fight the Hulk. And if the Hulk kills Thor, that's awesome. And if Thor beats up the Hulk, well, then he'll be weak and tired for me to attack him afterwards, right? Brilliant plan. Um, and so he like manipulates everything. So Rick Jones gets on the radio to call for help when uh, the Hulk is on uh, on a rampage, and they try to call the Fantastic Four, but Loki is like, "Aha! I will not allow this radio call to go through, and I will in fact d- deflect the radio waves so that they go over to Thor instead." Well, it turns out that those deflected radio waves also accidentally wind up being heard by Iron Man and Ant-Man. So all three of these heroes, plus the Wasp, you know, who at this point is just kind of like a you know, sidekick for, for Ant-Man, um, show up at the Hulk's rampage to try to stop him. Uh, fairly quickly, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an unfair fight at that point. It's three on one. Um, but Ant-Man's not really, you know, terribly helpful in this fight. So... Uh, it's basically Thor and Iron Man against the Hulk. Uh, and then Thor kind of figures out that the Hulk is being manipulated. So he leaves. He takes off from the fight and goes to Asgard to catch Loki in the act of doing this, which pretty much leaves Iron Man alone fighting the Hulk with, you know, like the, 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 <laughs> the, uh, not, not terribly apparent help of Ant-Man, you know, like pitching in basically, but it's mostly Hulk versus Thor, uh, Hulk versus Iron Man. Thor succeeds in catching Loki and brings him back to Earth, uh, whereupon Loki then tries like his last shtick where he like creates, like uh, he, he turns himself radioactive uh, to try to kill all of the Avengers, which is weird, but okay. Uh, and it does allow Ant-Man to uh, actually get to use his super brains uh, in the track because he's the one who happens to know where like a radiation proof, uh, uh, like canister is right, and they they put a radiation proof uh, uh, tank is, and they managed to put Loki in there so he can't hurt anybody anymore. <laughs> and they decide, okay, well, this group now is going to be the Avengers. Um, very quickly, uh, again, now the Hulk again doesn't have his own series at this point, and it becomes immediately obvious that as much as they like the Hulk, uh, it's very difficult to explain how he's part of a superhero team. Right, he's great fun and adds all kinds of like interesting conflict to the story, but you can't really see him showing up for a meeting every. Night. That just doesn't seem in character for him. 
So in the second issue of the Avengers, you know, we have the whole, uh, you know, the, um, the Hulk basically is, uh, you know, the, the, the heroes are manipulated into thinking the Hulk has gone evil again and totally believe that and attack him. And the Hulk realizes that nobody trusts him on this team. So he quits. Uh, and nobody would ever quit a superhero team before, right? Like we had Johnny quit, uh, the, you know, the, the Fantastic Four a couple of years ago for an issue. And the right. thing was always threatening to quit the Fantastic Four. But Hulk outright quits. And that's a brand new, again, concept. Nobody ever quit the Justice League. Nobody ever quit any of the Golden Age, you know, comics. Um, the idea that like there would be constant turnover of the lineup in this comic was, a, was, was once again a brand new thing that Stan and Jack invented. Right. 63 continues, you know, uh, the X-Men are introduced in the fall. Well, obviously, we'll get a bunch more about them in other issues, uh, other episodes. Daredevil comes out in 1964. Stan and Martin go back to Independent and say, please, 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 can we get more than eight titles a month? Look how much money we're making, right? You're getting a percentage of all of our sales. We could be making more, and you could be getting more money if you let us print more titles. And Independent is kind of looking at this going like, well, on the one hand, you're cutting into DC sales maybe, but on the other hand, we're getting a chunk of the sales that you're making from it. Okay, let's, we'll compromise. How about 12 titles? So they accept that. And so now Marvel has gone up to, to 12 as the total number of things that they can put out in any given month. Ditko and Kirby are doing the bulk of the work. They have between them created an atmosphere, uh, an artistic atmosphere at Marvel that is unprecedented and they are wildly different from each other right there's no question of like you know the the ditko titles don't look anything like the kirby titles um but they're both tremendously exciting to the fans and within a couple of years marvel has become way cooler than dc their sales may be you know kind of like comparable in fact dc is still a little ahead at this point because they've got all of these you know like famous characters but like dc is pat boone in the face of like the Marvel British invasion at this point, right? Like the, you know, the Marvel's like the Beatles and the Stones, you know, and kids, older kids are embracing them and college kids are embracing them on a level that they never did with DC. And Marvel is realizing our audience, the, the audience that we have always thought we were aiming at is eight to 12 year olds. And no, it's really not. It's 10 to 18, right? That's really what our, you know, what our target audience is. And they, you know, kind of like embrace that. Um, there's no room in their line anymore, even with these 12 titles, to have not superhero stuff. You know, they're cutting down. Most of the, the romance titles are getting cut. That's only, they're only down to one or two of those. Most of the Westerns are getting cut. Pretty much all the sci-fi stuff has been given to the superheroes, right? Tales to Astonish is now the Ant-Man. Uh, Journey into Mystery is now Thor, etc. Um, and Stan is in the process of creating... <clears throat> basically what are actually going to be the real most important characters in Marvel, right? We can all talk about how important Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, et cetera, et cetera, are to Marvel, but more important than those individual characters are the Marvel characters, are the people at Marvel that Stan has created this fictional world about, right? Stan and Jack and Steve and the other people working on Marvel comics themselves are getting so pumped up in the titles, in the splash pages, in the credits. Everybody's got a wacky nickname. Everybody's got, you know, like the pseudo Shakespearean foolishness that Stan is putting on every page is creating this image that like the, the Marvel bullpen must be the coolest place in the world to work 
right? Because everybody is friends, everybody is awesome, everybody is super creative. And, you know, letters to the editor that are coming in from fans, you know, when you when you wrote to Superman, you would write Dear Editors of Superman, right, in your letter. If you're writing to Marvel, you're writing Dear Stan and Jack because you feel like you know them, right? They are, you have a, a level of connection to the characters and to the creators that have never happened before. This is, of course, completely bogus, right? The Marvel bullpen does not exist as a physical thing. There's like four people in the Marvel office total, you know, Stan, Flo Steinberg as like his secretary. Secretary Sol Brodsky's the production manager, and he's got one or two like correction inkers. All of the other people who are part of the bullpen, they all work from home. They've got their own studios. They might come in once a week to drop off paper and pick up a paycheck, you know. Um, but there's no kind of like wacky office where all of this is is you know like happening. But it, there is in everybody's imagination of you know what the Marvel bullpen looks like, and that's kind of really. Stan's greatest fictional creation is the existence of this wonderful world, right? Right. Kind of like uh, modern day, like influencers or um, you know YouTube personalities who uh, create an image. Of yeah. Right. Into. Yeah. Right. And again, like the, it, it's unprecedented, right? Like nobody ever felt this sense. They all the all the fans for good and ill start to feel like they have a piece of this. Right there, that 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 it matters to them. Stan is telling me a story directly, you know, and 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 is my friend and is giving me this story, you know, to to cheer me up or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so the '60s, you know, continue on. In 1964, Stan finally kind of like completes his trilogy, basically, and brings back Captain America. So the last of the old characters that Marvel owned the rights to uh, comes back in the Avengers. And then eventually gets his own series as well. Um, his own series will kind of like flash back and forth. In fact, for a while, the early stories uh, of Captain America's solo series will take place during World War II because they're not sure he makes any sense in the modern day, right? So instead, he goes back and starts teaming up with Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos to like punch out Hitler some more and to like bring back the Red Skull. Pretty clearly, uh, within a couple of years, it's obvious Captain America works just fine in the 60s. And so they will bring him you know, into the modern day. Uh, Tales to Astonish brings back the Hulk uh, as a regular monthly title in October of 1964. So it's about two years after he was first canceled. He's shown up in enough other places and is kind of like well connected in the Marvel Universe enough now that they can give him his own half comic series that he's now sharing with Giant Man. Um, Captain America is now sharing Tales of Suspense with Iron Man. Um, Kazar another Marvel old-timey character uh, that they'd owned the rights to since 1940, comes back, is reintroduced in X-Men. Uh, the X-Men go off on a weird you know, trip to the Savage World, basically, and meet Kazar, and he becomes part of the universe there. Um, in 1965, uh, the Fantastic Four have their wedding, have the, the Reed and Sue finally get married after you know, four years of engagement, basically, um, in a hilarious annual uh, in which, you know, like a zillion supervillains all try to attack uh, the wedding. And in the, the funny side bit is that Stan and Jack are trying to get in uh, themselves and aren't allowed into the building uh, during the wedding. They're stopped by security. So <clears throat> by 1965, at this point, uh, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee are still doing their two titles together. They're still doing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And Ditko has... Uh, fully at this point over the last few years fully embraced 
objectivism. He has now become a 100% follower of Ayn Rand. Uh, he is, you know, um, just 100% into that philosophy. And in his head, Stanley has become exactly the kind of villain that John Galt fought against, right? Like, as far as he's concerned, both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange are the fruits of his labor, and Stanley is a parasite uh, that is, you know, like somehow becoming more successful and more wealthy and et cetera, et cetera, on the back of Steve's work, right? And so he is coming to seriously hate Stan. And it's showing in the stories as he's, you know, like he's, he's uh, wandering farther and farther afield from what Stan wants to write about. Um, and Stan, for his part, at least in his descriptions of everything that happened, is basically genuinely baffled. Stan doesn't get objectivism. He doesn't understand what Steve is so upset about. Um, as far as he's concerned, this has always been their partnership. This is how we work together. You know, I am just as important. My jokes are just as important uh, to Spider-Man's success as your art is. Uh, that's just how it works, right? So Stan is like completely baffled as to why one of his key partners is so miserable and complaining about him all the time. And this will continue to be a problem eventually. Um, Jack, on the other hand, is doing all right with it. Jack is, you know, getting to do what he wants to do. Fantastic Four and Thor are right up his alley. Uh, he is feeling, you know, like an unprecedented level of creativity. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he still doesn't trust Stan. He certainly wouldn't trust him with money. Uh, we've kind of like established the reasons for that in previous episodes. Um, but he's pretty happy with his creative situation and it shows in what he's doing. In 1966, he creates Galactus. He creates the Silver Surfer. He creates the Inhumans. He creates the Black Panther, right? Like all of these important key uh, characters are pretty much wholeheartedly out, you know, entirely out of Jack's brain first. Mm -hmm. And then Stan sees them on the page and has to figure out, you know, like what to do with them, right? Uh, you know, right. When he, the first time he sees Galactus, he's absolutely baffled at the character. He's like, who is this guy? He wasn't in our plot when I talked to you on the phone. <laughs> earlier this month, right? Like this giant guy with a G on his chest has just shown up in the story. Who, who is this guy? And Stan says, that's God. The, the G is for God. And Stan's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know? And basically has to, you know, scale him back a little bit. But that's, you know, that's, that's effectively what he's doing. This, I think this is the first time we've described in, uh, in our series someone being upset and, it, uh, and uh, Jack Kirby being involved in it not being him. And not being him, exactly right. Well, he's going to get upset in a couple more years. Um, but yeah. for right now, he's very happy with his, his situation. Right. <clears throat> so with all of these titles out, right, like Stan is now responsible. He's, he's farming out as many things as he can, right? Like, and he's doing less individual work on many of the titles, right? Like he will, you know, spend a day working out a plot. And then they'll send him something back at the end of the month, and he'll do the he'll do the the scripting. But he's not really involved in the day to day creation of stuff. He's more pulled back because he needs to be because he's got like you know twelve titles that he is pretty much single handedly responsible for writing. Um, he's given some of the stuff to his brother Larry. Uh, he's given things to a couple of other freelancers. Don Rico does some freelancing. Um, there's a couple of other artists who are doing some of like the side work and their titles in and around because uh, Jack and Steve are both like you know completely uh, uh, full up in their schedules. Um, so, you know, you've got the, these other artists, Don Heck and people like that who are, who are trying to do this, but they don't work the same, uh, with the same level of efficiency that Jack and Bitcoin, Jack and Steve both do with Stan, right? Like Stan understands their stuff and can just come in and do them. With Don Heck, he's got to make him do some stuff over again, 
right, to make it work. Um, and so he's Stan is increasingly overworked and trying to figure out how he's going to get all of this stuff out, right? Like he's completely stressed and he finally realizes he needs to hire another full-time in-house scriptwriter. And the person he winds up hiring is Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas had been very briefly, he had come to New York from St. Louis to take a job at DC. He was going to be Mort Weisinger's assistant. And he lasted eight days there. Mort Weisinger basically was such an ass to him uh, that Roy, as much as he loved being at DC, as much as this is all he ever wanted to do, he was so miserable after eight days that when somebody from Marvel called, having also received his resume, called him to see what he was doing, he was just like, please get me out of here. <laughs> right, I'll go in there and quit right now, uh, and come over and work for you that day, which he did. Right, like by the you know in the morning he was Mar Mort Weisinger's assistant, and by the end of the day he was like scripting a Millie the Model comic for Marvel, <laughs> you know, just to get him out of there. He was so unhappy. Um, and at that point, Marvel has you know when when Roy comes in to help Stan with the writing, at that point, Marvel is now triple the size that it was in 1961. In five years, they've tripled in size. Uh, as far as the amount of money that they're making. Right. And at this point is when Martin Goodman kind of like looks in and says, okay, you know, he starts kind of like shopping the characters. He's like, you know, he's never cared particularly about the comics. He's in the magazine business. The comics are making more money than he's used to. And he starts kind of like shopping the characters to do other stuff, right? Like he starts putting advertisements. The, you know, Spider-Man is advertising things and the Fantastic Four are advertising things and that kind of thing. They create the first animated series uh, in 1966 and they kind of famously do it with a really terrible studio that will basically take a bunch of existing Marvel art and then do a half-assed job partially animating them, right? <laughs> you know, that if you've ever seen any of the Marvel superheroes or Spider-Man mid-60s, uh, uh, series, the, the animated series, they're terrible from an animation point of view. The stories are incredibly exciting if you've never seen anything like that, if you're not, not familiar with the comics, because they basically took the plots right out of the comics. Um, so Goodman is trying very hard to like squeeze, as usual, as much money as he can out of this. And he is the one, as the line number is allowed, as uh, ind independent is letting them uh, take more and more titles, he starts putting a couple of reprint titles into that mix, right? He starts doing Marvel Tales and Marvel's Greatest and all of these titles that basically either are redoing 40 stories or are even just going back five years because he's still of the viewpoint that like every five years or so, the audience turns over, right? We're only selling to eight to 12 year olds. So when a kid turns 13, we've got a whole bunch of new eight year olds to tell that story to, right? So he starts reprinting the very first Spider-Mans and the very first Hulks and the very first Avengers and that kind of thing in these titles. All he wanted to do, the only reason he did this was to make more money for the same work, right? Like all he wanted to do was get paid a second time for putting out that comic. But what he accidentally did was make it really easy for new fans to get access to the old stories, right? Those key important issues that had important plot twists or first appearances, that kind of thing, you couldn't find a copy of Amazing Adventure, you know, Amazing Adult Fantasy number 15, right? If you wanted the first Spider-Man appearance, this is before, you know, collecting is a full-on uh, uh, industry the way it would be later. Um, it was just impossible to get them, right? They li literally, they, were, they didn't exist. You know, you had to like find them from a collector. There wasn't a shop. There weren't conventions, none of these things. But Marvel Tales reprinted that story. 
right? So you always had access to it. And what it did was create a very educated fan base. Marvel had very quickly of like people who knew the important stories and hung with the serial nature of the fiction, right? Like they understood they could go back and look at the older stories because they were always being reprinted. Right. So you had this at this point now it's time for, you know, there's the, 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 the last of the first generation bullpenners are showing up, right? Like we have expanded enough now that Stan needs to bring in more writers to bring in more artists, right? He brings in uh, Gary Friedrich. Uh, Archie Goodman, John Basima starts doing some art for them. Um, a couple of his older Atlas and even Timely artists also see that Stan, you know, they, they've been screwed over by Stan a couple of times, right? Like they, these guys uh, had, had not gotten paid for some of their last bits uh, working with Atlas, you know, or had been, you know, kind of fired by Atlas. And it took them a few years to believe that Stan was for real this time. Right, like Marvel had to go about four or five years in before Gene Colan would take a job from him again, but finally he did. Finally, Stan kind of like pointed it. Look at all the stuff that we're doing here. You know, I promise we're not going to fire you mid-title again. You know, yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. Gene Colan comes in and becomes the new Daredevil. Right, John Romita comes in for the first time. Uh, Jim Steranko, who is an a, a amazing guy himself, who really needs his own episode of this uh, at some point, um, starts working at Marvel. What was that? I said, we'll put it on the list. Yeah, we definitely should. Uh, Steranko is a nut, right? Like, I mean, he comes in and he starts doing the art for the um, Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff in Tales of Suspense and is completely unlike anybody else working. He's the only guy whose work doesn't look like a ripoff of either Kirby or Ditko. It's completely unique. It's op art. It's, you know, he's paying attention to like modern art techniques. Um, Stranko is a, was briefly a professional car thief, uh, you know, like made a living stealing cars. Uh, he was a guitarist who played with Bill Haley in the comets. <laughs> you know, he was a professional fire eater. You know, he's just had this like nutty life, uh, that, you know, incidentally drawing comics for a few years was just part of it, you know? Mm. Um, so Marvel is now making so much money for independent that independent can't really argue that they should be held down right like they're making independent is making more money distributing marvel than they are from their share of dc Hmm. uh and so they expand the title cap to 18 uh in 1966 um and at that point most of those kind of shared titles they can split them off right? right tales of suspense doesn't have to be iron man and captain america the numbering continues with iron man and captain america gets his own series Right, and they do the same with several of the other titles that give series to uh, Submariner gets his own series for the first time at this point. Uh, you know, they can just kind of like start spreading these things out because they've got enough room to maneuver. Um, in 1967, uh, January 67 is the first bullpen bulletin gets printed. Right, like the first of those kind of like you know here's the behind the scenes stories of what's happening in the Marvel offices. Uh, they start doing a, a humor series to make fun of their stuff called Not Brand Eck that starts in summer of 67. Uh, They introduce Adam Warlock in the fall of 67. Captain Marvel starts at the end of 1967. Uh, In 1968, they redo their uh, deal with Independent again. Their contract is renewed, and Goodman gets it pushed up. Now they can do 24 titles a month, right? Um, And so they are pumping out all of these different titles. They pass DC in sales in 1968 gross sales for the company. At that point, Marvel is currently selling 50 million comics a year. 
um, and has passed DC in gross sales uh, by that point. Uh, in 1968, you have uh, The Vision shows up in, in Avengers. Roy Thomas is now writing Avengers full time and he creates The Vision. Uh, Reed and Sue have a kid in, at the end of 1968. They have Franklin is born, right? Um, so the movie, you know, it's, it's charging still on ahead. Uh, and Goodman finally in 1968 says, uh, thanks, this has been great. I'm done. Um, I'm getting out. I've been, uh, uh, I've received an offer for the magazine management company for the, the, the corporation that's, you know, above Marvel that owns Marvel, um, from something called the perfect film and chemical corporation. They have offered me $15 million. Uh, for the whole company, and I'm taking it, so I'm selling all of you to this company. $15 million in 1968 is about $100 million today. That's less than a year's worth of sales. That's a very cheap rate, right? And like, why Goodman takes this deal remains kind of a bit of a question. Um, it's pretty clear that like in Goodman's personal life, he needed some cash at that point, right? Because that's really not enough. $15 million for a company that is actually doing 18 to 20 million a year in gross sales is a very small number. You know, if it's at all profitable, if it's not losing money and most of their stuff was not losing money. Um, like uh, Stanley was probably taken aback by that. Everybody was. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of kind of like wondering what was going on. Now, as part of this deal with Perfect Film and Chemical, Goodman kept his job as publisher uh, for the whole operation, right? So Stan reported to him as well as like the magazine side, right? They're still doing all of their, you know, bachelor magazines and adult magazines. Um, many of which by this point have tended closer and closer to porn, right? They're not actually hardcore porn, but they're, you know, they, they have gone past Playboy into Penthouse, right? <laughs> you know, Swank and the other titles that they are doing in by the late sixties have, uh, you know, less and less pretense to being, uh, you know, a, a serious magazine at that point, right? But they're still making money and Martin's son, Chip, is running that side of the company. So Chip and Stan basically are kind of like the two guys directly below Martin Goodman. They hate each other. They cannot stand each other. Uh, Chip thinks that uh, Stan is an overblown salesman, right? Like who's, you know, full of uh, hot air and self-promotion and is not actually that great a businessman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, most of which is probably true. Uh, and Stan thinks that, you know, uh, Chip is basically, uh, he only has his job because he's Martin's son. He didn't work for anything for this. He was basically handed this and has shown no particular talent for the business. And that's probably true, right? So they had good reasons not to get along. They had, you know, they, they did correctly identify, you know, bad things about each other. So Perfect Film and Chemical Corporation was this weird conglomerate uh, of companies that had, were all owned by a guy named Martin Ackerman. He'd formed this company in 1962. And the main company of this that everything was built around was a film processing company uh, where basically you, you, know, you would take your pictures with your camera and then you would mail your film to this service basically that would develop them and then send you pictures back. That's in you know, kids in the 60s, that's how you got pictures taken. Um, but this company also owned like a plasticware company and a mail order drugs and pharmaceuticals and vitamins company, and also owned the popular library uh, paperback publishing company. I mean, like there, were, there was no rhyme or reason to these different companies, like why they would be together. They had very little to do with each other. Um, and over the course of like the next year or two, they would buy other stuff along with buying 
magazine management and incidentally Marvel. Uh, they bought the uh, Desilu movie, the TV and movie studios where they made Star Trek and I Love Lucy and then turned around and resold it a year later. Uh, they sold their popular, popular library stuff to Fawcett uh, in 1970. So, I mean, he was constantly churning through these different kinds of businesses, uh, most of which, you know, he had very little to do with actually running. He was just kind of like moving the money around. Ackerman was this kind of like classic, you know, Hollywood version of like a sleazy, vaguely sleazy businessman, right? He was a lawyer and a banker. Uh, he had a law degree and uh, briefly owned a bank uh, back in the 50s. And he wrote a how-to book uh, famously called Money, Power, Ego, a manual for would-be wheeler dealers, uh, which was basically teaching you how to do what he did, how to get rich doing the sort of things that he did, and also how to look good in doing it, right? Like what kind of suit you should wear and, uh, you know, how you should go to Vegas and like act like a big deal and that kind of thing, just to, you know, to teach, teach guys how to be like him, right? Um, he invested in uh, fine art. He donated fine art to museums all around California and the East Coast as well. He hung out with Hugh Hefner. They were best buddies for a while. Uh, he had been the head of Curtis Publishing, um, who published the Ladies' Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post, which he famously closed down. Uh, he like drained it of all of its assets and money and then shut it down, which is why there is no Saturday Evening Post anymore. Uh, he was in real estate. He was in you know like a bunch of kind of like sleazy businesses and was the kind of guy you know, like a, a couple of people today that you could hold up as examples who was in court all the time, either suing somebody or being sued by somebody. Um, he was accused but never convicted of mucking around with union pension funds. He had a townhouse on Park Avenue. He had he owned a jet. Uh, you know, he was exactly there. There was no reason, once again, for this guy to have anything to do with comic books. Comic books did not have the kind of money, you know, that like uh, would would be useful like that comics the, the comic book business uh would not interest him and it showed uh he left the magazine the new management of magazine uh management he got rid of in 1969 in a wild flurry of lawsuits and unhappy investors right he was sued eight or ten times and he countersued three or four of those guys and basically you know fucked off of the money uh and he was replaced by this guy named sheldon feinberg and Sheldon Feinberg was a miserable bastard. Uh, he hated everybody. Everybody hated him. He uh, proclaimed that the company he inherited, Perfect Film, which had just changed its name to something called Cadence Industries, uh, was a mess. And the first thing he was going to do was start cutting costs. So he starts chopping things right and left from the company, the things that were not profitable. At first, Marvel was not one of those, right? Marvel was doing okay. And so uh Feinberg, you know, didn't have anything really to cut from it and instead started kind of like taking more advantage of the intellectual property of Marvel, right? Like they owned, like I said, they owned a pharmaceutical company and they owned Marvel. So they figured it was a pretty good idea to to sell, create and sell Spider-Man chewable vitamins, right? Like one side of his company would license it to another side of his company uh, and like put out these, uh, the, the chewable vitamins and they sold pretty well, right? So he was pretty happy with, with, with this uh, setup. And so Feinberg looks at the company that he's, you know, he's, he's got here and says, you know what? Uh, Stan Lee seems to know what he's doing. His side is doing all right. Chip Goodman's side, 
Yeah, not so much. You know, we're gonna we're gonna make him like less important, basically, and makes Lee the president and publisher when Martin Goodman his contract retires. Right now, Martin had fully hoped that his son was going to take over, but instead Feinberg steps in and he makes Lee the president. Lee promptly cuts Chip out of the Marvel side entirely. Chip now owns no part of Marvel and is only the manager of those last few almost porn magazines. That's the only part of the business Lee left to Chip. Uh, and that kind of uh, you know, famously started a feud between Stan and Chip's dad, Martin. I mean, Stan and Chip already hated each other, but now Martin was mad at Stan. And Martin uh, went off and started his own new comic book company to compete with Stan directly. And that would be called Atlas Seaboard. And we promise they will definitely get their own uh, episode someday. Steve Long, if you're listening, we will definitely get to that. Uh, but you know, he, he basically created a company entirely out of spite and his attempted revenge on Marvel. Um, but that pretty much brings us up to, you know, we're about to get into the 70s here. And uh, this episode's going long already. So I think we might have to cut it off here. Yep. We'll pick up next time with uh, the 70s. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good day. Thanks for coming. <laughs>